Hello, welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science and that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Jeff Zwerink. I'll be your guide as we explore uh, some philosophy topics about uh, UFOs and how continents got started. Before we get into the discussion, though, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, Reasons to Believe, so you can be notified of our new weekly videos. Learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at RTB underscore official. Well, it's good to be here today. Brian, I'm excited about our conversation today. Um, if you could, just kind of give us a 20-second introduction. Who are you? What do you study? And what makes you interesting? Okay. Well, I am from Charlotte, North Carolina, and I currently live in Statesboro, Georgia. Uh, my academic background is in mostly philosophy. I have a, a master's in philosophy and PhD in philosophy of religion. I teach philosophy uh, for Southern Evangelical Seminary and teach some homeschool classes for Apologia. And I have three kids, um, play guitar when I can a little bit, uh, used to play golf. <laughs> um, just finished some work with the Air Force and did my research project on uh, what they call U UAPs, kind of like UFOs. Um, yeah, and this is a pretty hot, hot topic. There's a lot going on. Just with a, did a church conference on this, doing a podcast tonight, even on Solomon's Corner about it. So it's a seems to be a pretty hot topic for for some reason today. Right. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. I know I agree with you. Uh, UFOs are UAPs now, is what they're called. Uh, I assume you'll give yeah. us a bit of background on that. Why don't you get us started? What do, What do we need to know, or what's going on with those these days? Well, you know, I always had a, a fascination, uh, as I guess most people do, with, with backyard astronomy and the night sky. And so as, as a kid, I was into that. I've always kind of liked UFOs just as a general interest, I guess. But when the New York Times in 2017 broke the story about the, the Navy pilots capturing these videos mm -hmm. uh, of these, what we're just going to call UFOs or UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, uh, uh, and the Pentagon said, yeah, these are legitimate videos. Uh, I actually read Hugh Ross's book, Lights in the Sky and the Green Minute, and Ken Samples and Mark Clark's book. Um, and that kind of kicked off a, a real interest uh, for me about these things because he was quoting people. This is a real word, ufologists, people who study things all about UFOs, ufology. And um, so I started reading all of their book, uh, people like uh, Jacques Vallée and, 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 and J. Allen Hynek and things. And, and it was interesting because they were saying this is – a real legitimate thing. And, and you think about UFOs, you think about people who are um, kind of kooky and weird. And, and one of the things that I, I learned through my studies is that yeah, a lot of people are seeing these and they're across all spectrums of, of education, politics, socioeconomic background all over the world. That's going way back into human history. Uh, and it's interesting. So I, I just started uh, my project two years ago. And within that time, the the u.s has started the pentagon started a uap task force the office of the uh, director of national intelligence came out with a preliminary assessment uh, that was uh, pretty much directed them to do that by by donald trump and then this past july uh, we had our first open congressional hearing in the past 50 years on the topic so there's a lot of of uh interest and in interweaving on on ufos from the military from the you know, national security side and then there's, there's, of course, a whole nother, the pun intended, dimension of the topic when, it, when we get into things like the, uh, the occultic issue or spiritual issue. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways we can look at this. Aliens. And so the podcast tonight is, well, if aliens did exist, would that in any way affect 
Christianity, what would that mean? Because right. people have said that if there are aliens, and that would be, to use their, their words, a real faith shaker. Well, should right. it be? I, I don't think it should, and there's no reason I don't think to believe in aliens per se, but there's a lot going on with the topic today. Well, very good. So why don't you, can you give us a brief description? Because I know UFOs, everybody seems to know what that terms mean, mm -hmm. term means, but this UAP, is there a fundamental reason for that new terminology or? Yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, normally ufology in, in the United States kind of kicks off around 1947 when Ken Arnold uh, saw his, his famous uh, sighting around uh, uh, Mount Rainier, Washington, and he said he saw nine uh, what later became known as, as discs and, and just known as flying saucers. Mm -hmm. Then the term flying saucer kind of became pejorative and like, well, that's just a flying saucer. So in, in the early 1950s, the person running the Air Force Project Blue Book, uh, Edward Ruppelt, actually coined the term, he says he coined the term UFO, I think he pronounced it UFO actually. Uh, and then that term became pejorative. And so they have, now they're calling it UAP. Uh, it means the same thing. Okay. Uh, unidentified aerial phenomena or anomalous phenomena. I think it's just trying to make it seem a little bit less pejorative in that regard. But yeah, it means the same thing. And it's funny because it's the military who keeps changing the terminology as time goes by. So what are the phenomena that we're seeing? I mean, is there any truth to these being actual phenomena? Or I mean, what have you found in your research and what do we need to know in thinking about these? Okay, so about 95 or so percent roughly of, of what, what are seen or, or reported are very explainable through natural phenomena, weather, uh, Venus, people looking at Venus, people looking at um, actual technology that's secret. In fact, the Air Force has used UFOs as a cover uh, for their own technology. But there's about 5% or so, to, and, and, and in years past, it's been as high as about 25% that are truly unidentified. We don't know what they are. But they're seeing all kinds of things, things like um, disks, or what we would consider just flying saucers, um, tic-tac looking things they come in all shapes mm -hmm. square triangle circle they can change their shape change their color they come in and out of of a field of view instantaneously almost just vanishing um they have all all, all kinds of, of of appearances and and looks and, and speeds and uh that sort of thing but yeah it, it is real people are seeing them across the world and way back into human history didn't start with the 20th century it goes hundreds of years back uh, from what uh, historians of the phenomena tell us. But yeah, there is a real aspect to it. Uh, we can't just wave it off as as simply natural. Uh, most of it's natural, but there's a, a small component that, that is not explainable in that regard. Uh, and even our military has, has come out saying, yeah, there are these things. We don't know what they are. They're not ours. We don't think they're anybody else's like China's or any, anything like that. So they do, they don't know what they are either. At least that's what they're saying. So let's kind of stick with that 95%. Uh, you know, mentioned sometimes it's it's Venus. Um, are these dominantly people see with their eyes or is this a lot of this instruments on a plane or on a ship? Or, I mean, is there any sense you have of the, the distribution of what people are actually seeing or what the actual the, the detection is, if you will? Yeah, there's different uh, what now we're calling sensors. So there are a lot of people who were just seeing them with their with their naked eye. And then there are uh, radar reports. As radar was becoming more and more available, uh, more and more radar were seeing these things. For example, the, there was a 1952 flap. A flap is, is a term used in ufology to, to describe a, a lot of UFO activity in one spot or a lot of things going on all at the same time. And there was one over Washington, D.C., of all places, 1952, which which 
kind of pushed the CIA to get involved. And they, they were seen by the pilots with their, their, their eyes. They were seen with radar. Um, they, they're detected by, by various sensors, uh, multiple at, at the same time in some cases. So, yeah, it's not just the eye. It's not just, not mm -hmm. just the radar either. It's pretty much just a, a pretty good swath of, of different ways of, of seeing it and, and detecting it. And so, I mean, are there, do these tend to be all at night? Uh, I know I've uh, had a couple of talks and, uh, you know, they're, just when you're, when you, when you do enough stuff in the air or whatever, <laughs> you, you tend to see unusual circumstances and unusual, you know, that's, that's what leads the identified flying object. I know at least one right. of them I saw was, you know, gas jets off of a, uh, uh, offshore oil rigs, you know, they just give odd phenomena because of atmospheric effects. Do they tend to happen at all times of day or at night? They happen all times of day, but the per, the preponderance of of sightings are at night. Uh, if you read John Keel, uh, he's a, a well known uh, not only ufologist but kind of a, a paranormal investigator. Kind of he passed away a few years ago, but he argues that the the preponderance of of, of sightings are actually on Wednesdays night around ten o'clock and a Saturday evening. <laughs> but if you read Jacques Vallée and other people, they'll say, yeah, this is normally at night, uh, late at night. And there's different theories as to why that would be. One is you, you can see things in the sky better at night if they're if they're lit up. And these aren't just reflecting light; they're actually luminous, giving off their own light a lot of times. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of theories as to why that would be. People are looking up. Uh, people are out at those times. Um, but they do. They are seen in the in the day. So Heineck, uh, the the astronomer from Ohio who worked with the Air Force, categorized these different kinds of, of sighting light, like daylight discs or nocturnal lights. In all the close encounters as well but yeah they're, they're seen all the time but mostly at night so my, my perception you know is i don't spend a lot of time looking into this but uh, you know every now and again i'll investigate it obviously people ask me questions and you know it seems like there's a lot more of these phenomena that are being talked about where there seems to be good video evidence of a you know like a a or a trapezoidal pyramid that's floating around in the air or something like that. Uh, what do you make of stuff like that? Is this, are we seeing actual alien ships or is this military or something other? It's, it seems a little bit too, too geometric to be just <laughs> uh, some random phenomena out there, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have seen all kinds of shapes. We've seen, like, in, as, you, as you just mentioned, triangles, rectangles, squares, circles, you pretty much name it, ovals, cigar-shaped looking things. Um, and some of them, some people are seeing military aircraft, the, the F-117, for example, that's triangular in, in shape, uh, was the cause of a lot of UFO reports. Mm -hmm. um, but what are they? So there's various theories as to what these things could be. Uh, one of them would be military aircraft. Uh, and then when you start looking at the, the ones that, that are doing things that seem to defy physics, where they, they don't seem to be physical, they're going at hundreds, if not thousands of miles per hour and performing right angle or 180 degree angle turns, mm -hmm. going through different mediums like, uh, like water, air, and space with like there's nothing there, disappearing, changing the shape from one thing to something else, uh, morphing into various things. That lends to, to other theories besides there being actual physical objects, as, as, as for example, he Ross argues in his book or mm -hmm. their book. Um, so of course, the, the, the kind of automatic knee-jerk reaction is, well, if it's not terrestrial, it's got to be extraterrestrial, meaning aliens. Right. And there's, there's arguments that people use for that. 
And there are a lot of good arguments that, that seem to indicate that that's probably not what's going on. And there's a whole nother aspect to this issue that seems to be spiritual in nature. Interestingly, some of the top ufologists like Hynek, uh, historian Jerome Clark, um, John Keel, argue that they're, they're not really even physical objects. They're more um, psychic in nature, not, not, not just in the mind, but that they have, they can manifest their, their immaterial, or as Keel says, paraphysical kind of things that can manifest as physical objects, much like we see with poltergeist type activity. There's a lot of similarities and connections between UFO alien type things and very occultic uh, paranormal type behavior. Um, so the other, if you want to get into what well, the arguments on both sides, there are arguments people use for aliens and there's arguments that, that seem to make that very problematic. So, I mean, yeah, when you're dealing with poltergeist ghosts, that, that's something I've always kind of classified as, I, I don't know, not real, not physical phenomena, mm -hmm. kind of interesting things that people see that they're adding more to, or, uh, are, are we talking about actual physical phenomena here? Or, I mean... How do we think about that? What's going on here, actually? With the UFOs? Yeah. You know, well, yeah, you said there's these things that may be non-physical, but have mm -hmm. man physical manifestations. Yeah. So they, they, you know, if you're looking at them, I mean, you, you think you're seeing a physical thing, uh, but there's, there's characteristics about how they fly, how they operate, how they maneuver, that seems to indicate that they're really not physical. And... Again, these are some of the people who have, who have really studied these issues at the highest levels, like Hynek, Keel. Valet thinks they're physical, but they go between dimensions. Um, they sometimes make it on radar. They what was called paint on radar. They should show up on radar. They don't break. They don't oftentimes have any sound. Where they should break the sound barrier. They should have a sonic boom. Um, they should, you would think, shatter or kill anything inside of it if they're performing a right angle or 100 degree turn at an incredible high rate of speed and just vanishing and disappearing. Uh, these, these kinds of things make it, make it seem like they're really not physical or being miles over there as a, as a commander Fraser in the Navy said, and then instantaneously being miles over there or mm -hmm. they're going, uh, these kind of things make it where it seems like they're not very really physical. The counter to that as well, they had some kind of, um, knowledge about physics that we haven't gained yet okay um, but when you couple that with other aspects of the issue like the uh the poltergeist type thing and like like the very anti-christian uh aspects of these alleged alien encounters and just the phenomenon in general it, it really doesn't seem like it's it's alien or even physical even the even the alien abduction experiences uh don't seem to be really be physical in nature now okay. they do leave physical traces, so they can they can cause manifestations that are physical. They can leave radi radiation behind. They can leave impressions. They can break um, tree limbs, for example. Like they can they can cause um, depressions. It looks like there's there was a, a triangular uh, landing gear, for example. They they can cause physical effects on cars or electromagnetic effects or even biological effects. People have been known to die in these mm -hmm. in these in these encounters. So they can they can certainly have these kind of manifestations we already know that non-physical beings can cause or, or bring about physical manifestation we see this with, in the bible with angels for example right they can materialize or bring about material effects 
So, so I, we've moved over into that kind of 5% that no longer have a physical explanation at some level saying that these are now not just physical phenomena. There's got to be something more. And this is where you get the kind of poltergeist UFO or alien type explanation. Um, I'm assuming you don't think that's the right way to think about it. How, what, what is what is your assessment of how what what these things are when you're not dealing with the the ones that have physical that behave physically the way they're supposed to? Yeah. So you look at this much in the same way you would the resurrection, for example. You say, okay, well, here's the different theories. Which theory gives us the most explanatory power? That is, how how well do these theories explain the data? Uh, what what has the best explanatory scope? How, how much of the data is explained? What's the most plausible? What's the least amount of ad hoc uh, or just kind of made up to save the day regardless of any kind of evidence? Mm -hmm. um, and so we have these different theories. One, of course, is the extraterrestrial hypothesis, the ETH. Um, another well-known one is Valet's view, which is you, you go through, these things are, are here. They're not extraterrestrial in the alien sense. They're physical, but they, they can go through the various physical dimensions and that would kind of explain, according to Valet, why they can maneuver the way they do and kind of pop in and out of existence as, as, as they do. Okay, so, so there, there's physical dimensions near us that we don't have access to, and somehow these beings can cross between those dimensions. That's what Valet is saying. That's yes. what Valet is saying. Okay. Yes. Now, uh, and I'm not an astronomer or a physicist, but so going back, leaning on Hugh Ross, for example, uh, he says that that's an interesting theory. And I know Hugh Ross does believe in these, in these various dimensions, as a lot of physicists do. But according to him, once you start looking at the, the theories of relativity, you, you're pretty much locked into one dimension. You can't just go in and out mm -hmm. of these various dimensions. Right. Uh, and then, and I think that Valet has some really good points to make, especially with pointing out the problems of the alien view, because there are a lot of problem, problems with that view. Uh, I don't think his, his answer is probably has the best explanatory scope because it doesn't really answer why there's this spiritual kind of paranormal occultic and even very anti-christian not just anti-religious but anti-christian dimension to it uh, hmm. and if you look at the the research of, of various people like for example uh joe jordan he is a he is a director of of a, a mufon chapter mufon stands for mutual ufo network okay and they are i think the leading civilian ufo research group mm -hmm. and he runs the one out in, in South Korea, and he's done a lot of research and have hundreds of people saying that when they're having this, what seems like an alien abduction experience, when, when they call the name of Christ, the, the abductions stop, hmm. which is interesting because uh, UFO research said there's nothing you can do to stop these experiences. Well, he started talking to other people at MUFON about this, and they said, well, yeah, we, we know that, but we can't talk about it because it's religious, so you can go research it and publish, and he has. Uh, his book is called uh, uh, Piercing the Cosmic Veil, uh, You Shall Not Be Afraid of the Terror by Night. And, and the word terror has, is very appropriate because it is very terrifying for these people who are experiencing these things. And also the teachings from these alien beings are, are just inherently anti-Christian. They, right. they talk about the, um, the, you know, Christ not being divine or having all these very anti-Christian. So you take all this together and not just starting at 1947, looking at the military aspect of it. If you look at the whole history uh, and, the, and the whole picture of ufology around the different countries around the world, going back centuries, 
Um, it, it just, if you look at the, at the big picture, it doesn't seem like that the alien view, to use Valet's terminology, is one strange enough or it answers all the phenomena. And Valet does a really good job of pointing out that there's a lot of similarities between these alleged uh, alien encounters and the other religious views around the world, like the fairy faith, for example, around Ireland and in other places around the world that connects to their own culture and worldviews. I used, I used to wonder why would a, a demon, for example, if this is what we're looking at, uh, that's, that's just one view. Why, why would a demon want to make us think that there are aliens? And other people like Valet, who's not a Christian, are saying because they want to, they are very deceitful. And Keel says this as well, very not, not a Christian at all. Uh, and they want to control our, our, our thoughts, our worldview, and our beliefs. That would be a great reason for a, for a demon to, to do that, if, if that's what we're seeing, because that does change our worldview, if they can do it through that kind of means. Well, and it's, it's a very interesting statement, because you know you, we're talking about stuff that we're largely seeing, or that a lot of the records are more recent, you know, within the last few hundred years, if you will. Right. You go back into scripture, and there's these repeated admonitions against you know, no spirit, no, no demonic spirit will ever say that Christ is the savior, you know? And so the, your, your description aligns with what scripture said thousands of years ago, this behavior we're seeing seems to align. I, I guess it kind of goes to your question there of, you know, what are the different models out there for doing that? It seems like the Christian demonic spiritual model has a lot of explanatory power in accounting for the phenomena that we see. Yeah, I think so. I think it, it does a good job of explaining the data that we're seeing, explains it well, so it's got scope and power. Um, I'm getting these terms from from uh, people like Habermas and like Cunningham when they do the, the resurrection theory. It's the same kind of uh, framework. Right. Uh, also, we can see this in David McCullough, for example, or uh, C.P. McCullough on his book on philosophy of history. Um, but it's it's just the same kind of way of, of exploring and, 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 and evaluating theories. The way it does seem like it, it takes everything into consideration and it does a good job of explaining the, the the apparent physical phenomena as well as the spiritual phenomena. So I want to go back to a comment you made. Uh, you know, you were discussing there and uh, about how if uh, one of the one of the fellows looking at this noticed that when you name the name of Christ, that the the abductions, the encounters disappear. And the comment from the other fellow was, "Well, that's religious. I can't investigate that." Why not? It seems like you now have this physical phenomena that's affecting what's going on. Why? Why? What was the what was the reason for not being able to include that in the investigation? I don't know if he said that. And it's weird because, you know, you're talking about things that are, you know, UFOs are uh, they're seen usually as, as not a normal thing. We can talk about aliens, but not not God. And, and that's just weird. Uh, I guess because it would it would be offensive or turn people off is just my kind of my guess, and it's kind of a taboo way of being able to go about looking at it. But if we're just trying to follow the evidence, I mean, why why not yeah. have this kind of this door that we can we can look at or you know walk through and see where does the evidence point? And his name is Joe Jordan. Joe Jordan is just he's just amassed this uh, uh, great amount of evidence that what we're seeing is not alien and, and there's again various reasons for that but it seemed like it is very spiritual in nature these beings walk through walls the the participants who are being abducted also are taken through walls uh there, there are instances where someone is abducted and they're in a room with other people and they don't leave the room they kind of go unconscious like they're in a trance like state 
Mm-hmm. And they say, yeah, we went to a spaceship. Well, you didn't go in a spaceship. They were right there in the living room the whole time. Right. Uh, so there's there's very much this this kind of psychological, not merely psychological, but psychological and spiritual aspect to the phenomena that these other theories just they're too simplistic. They don't look at the history of the issue uh, and they don't explain all of these data points like the like the fact that they, they do things that are very uh, anti-physical seemingly. And also this whole spiritual aspect of it is just ignored by a lot of folks. Interestingly, not by Valet. He has a whole book called uh, Messengers of Deception. And and he and, and, and John Keel, again, who are not Christians, who are saying these are very uh, deceitful type beings who are trying to to deceive us, to control us, to play tricks on us and lead us astray. Well, it's, it's really interesting. They, they come so close to the demonic view. They even use the terms demons and spiritual and, and things like that. They just don't connect it to... Uh, actual demonic or evil spiritual forces in the same regard that we would. They're really close, but they don't quite get there. Right. They have good reasons for a, for rejecting the alien view, and, and they support our view that these probably are very uh, just evil and, and deceitful type beings who are very anti-Christian. Right. Uh, one last question, and then I'll I'll let you have the last word, kind of wrap up uh, our discussion here. Uh, a while back, you know, you go back to uh, the comments you make, you know, how these things can fly through the air, supersonic. Why is it that they have the visual component of what's going on, but not like the auditory or sensory? You know, I mean, is is there is that a common thing, or is that just uh, I, I I only heard a part of what you were saying? It's very common for these these objects that are seemingly flying around to not have any noise mm-hmm. uh, sometimes they do sometimes they do cause noise um, but they oftentimes don't and we can only speculate as to why that would be um, it, it does tend to lean toward the the view again that they're not really physical that might be part of the deception because i think well if, if that's not having noise it's nothing like what we would have if it made noise they would make it seem more normal maybe and if okay. it doesn't have this noise, maybe it does seem more alien. That's just a spe- speculation. I don't know. Right. But it is very normal for these things, whether they're going slow or fast, to not have any kind of sound. Now, sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. Any final comments you want to have before we move on to our next topic? Um, well, I guess just be careful. I, I'm going to use John Keel here. He's again, is not a Christian. And he says, you know, if you get too far interested into these these topics and go down the, the rabbit trail too far uh it can be dangerous you can be lured into these these very dark corners there was someone who sent me a book his name is joe also um he was glad the book is over on on the ufo topic and i asked him why because it's very dark it is very dark mm-hmm. uh Marcia montenegro uh, wrote a book and has, has written a lot about the, the kind of seduction of paranormal um activity not not to rip off someone else's title there but the, the paranormal area i guess of life and it, it, it tends to suck us down that that road um and we get trapped in it so just we need to be we need to be aware that these things are real and that they're actually are dangerous because people are having these experiences where it, it does take the name of christ and the gospel to get them out of it so we just be careful dabbling in it but uh, we need to be aware of the situation and understand what the, the true nature of it is. And, um, and this, this is a great apologetic means to point us to uh, Jesus. We, we can use this as actually an apologetic tool to point us to the truth of the gospel. 
uh, we're going to shift gears from UFOs or UAPs into something, I guess, a little more tangible and physical, or at least that we know is physical. And I was reading uh, an article not too long ago about the origin of the continents. And this it kind of struck me as odd because, you know, everybody knows that we've got this earth that's got seven continents. And, you know, the, there's the two Americas, North and South America. You got Europe, Asia, you got Africa, you got Australia and Antarctica. And I love how the vast majority of those start and end with the same letter uh, if you get rid of the north and south i always found that uh, just from a word game fascinating but you know we've got these continents that are critical to life i mean you look at life here on earth and well over two-thirds of earth's life lives either on the continents or on the continental shelves and so <clears throat> just critical in in earth's capacity to host life or the the thriving diverse array of life that we have here on earth and I kind of found it interesting to recognize that the origin of the continents is actually uh, something that it's not like this weird mystery, if you will, but it's something that we don't have a real good handle. Say, OK, this is this is what we think is going on. And one of the ideas that has been out there for how you get continents started and the the interesting feature about continents that I have found is that continents are rocks. I mean, you know, they're the mountains, they're the stuff you think, okay, this is the heavy, dense stuff. And it turns out that when you look at the crust of the earth, there's the ocean crust and then the continental crust. The continental crust is kind of the light and buoyant stuff that floats up on top. It's the the lighter rocks. It's uh, rocks that have been processed and have less density. And so they float on top. And so typically once the continents have been formed, they tend to stick around for a long time. I mean, they'll be eroded, but most of that material gets put back onto the crust. But the idea that we didn't know where they started was something kind of interesting to me. And one of the ideas that has been out there is that the collision of asteroids with the earth early in its history was what started the process of continent formation. And I thought, now that's that's interesting if, if that turns out to be true, because and the idea here is you've got uh, miles to hundreds of miles wide asteroids that come in and collide. There's an, an enormous amount of energy deposited in the Earth. It uh, some, you know, if enough of these happen, you can kind of liquefy the surface of the Earth, uh, the rock surface of the Earth. Uh, you get this magma ocean and, you know, miles deep. But uh, as. We know that when, from an astronomy perspective, when we look back at the history of our solar system, uh, between somewhere between 4.2 and 3.8, 3.7 billion years ago, there seems to be a lot of evidence for a high degree of bombardment. We see it on Mercury. We see it on the moon. We see evidence of impacts on the Earth, uh, some of the more massive ones on the Earth uh, around that time scale. And the idea, what what uh, the continent or how that relates to the continents is that when these collision or when these asteroids come in, they disrupt the the crust of the material. They they cause a lot of melting. They eject a lot of debris, and that could actually be the process that starts the process of continent formation. So you're going to ex excavate material. So the pressure releases that's going to melt mantle underneath that area so that now you've got mantle that can now uh, connect up with the continent. It's going to fracture the crust, which means water from the ocean is going to be able to get in and process the crust. And that, that process uh, continues on. It just now adds the physical mechanisms 
add ways for more crust, continental crustal material to be added on to this nucleus that was formed during the impact. Now, the reason why this idea hasn't uh, been widely spread as, oh, this is how continents formed, is that it's there just hasn't been a lot of exp or evidence excavated or found that would support it. And, and that's I think that's kind of true of most continent origination models is there's just it's hard to get the data because most of the continents that were formed formed within that first billion years of Earth's history. And there's just not a lot of it that's left around that's easily accessible or it's all been reprocessed into other materials. But what this uh, group of researchers did was went down into Australia, into the Pilbara Craton, which is uh, one of these very old segments of uh, crust. And they started looking through the crust and there are zircons in this old crustal material that they can now use to start investigating. Is there any evidence for this impact model of what caused the continents to start? And what they found is in the zircons, they found three different stages of zircons, in particular in regard to one aspect, the amount of oxygen-18. So oxygen comes in three different isotopes. It comes oxygen-16, oxygen-17, oxygen-18. And the amount of the different isotopes gives indication of where the oxygen originated from. And we know the amount of oxygen, the oxygen 18 ratios for the uh, mantle, that's it's around five or so in, in the units they use. And what they were able to do is look at these zircons and found that lo and behold, the oldest zircons actually had uh, a oxygenation level that was much lower than that. Uh, so it was very low. And what, the, what that's evidence of is instead of being brought up from the mantle, what you have is, in this original impact, what would happen is it would cause a lot of processing by the oceanic water and the the this crust that was there, and it would actually remove that oxygen-18 isotope, enrich it in the oxygen-16, and so you're going to have sub-mantle oxygen-18 isotopes, and that, that's what they found in the zircons, the oldest zircons actually had that, which indicates that the original phases of continent building actually occurred much higher, or the material for it started much higher on the surface of the Earth. And then they found the newer zircons actually have much more uh, mantle levels of oxygen-18, these oxygen-18 isotopes, which indicates that once the once this nucleus of the crust was formed or the continent was formed it was now built up or added to by material underneath and then the 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 youngest zircons actually have evidence of a much higher oxygen ratio oxygen 18 ratio which is evidence of supercrustal and that's just a fancy term for uh, material that's added on top of the crust so these are like sedimentary igneous rocks that have maybe maybe have gone through metamorphosis and been added into the continents and so this picture is that you have an impact that fractures the surface of the earth melts it gets the process started the ocean water that gets into the cracks and fractionated separates things out, causes uh, reactions that make it less dense, that now upwells. It brings new mantle material up so that it, it uh, 
that new mantle material melts and then coalesces around the nucleus, makes the continent larger. Uh, things drip off, and that, there, there's a little more involved in that process. And then ultimately, later on, more material is added onto the continent through just subduction and volcanic eruptions and other things like that. And so the key feature, though, is that these oxygen-18 isotopes show that the initial stages of the continent formation happen very near to the Earth's surface, which is what you would expect, exactly what you would expect in this impact scenario. And from an astronomy perspective, I think, okay, if that scenario plays out, and I think there's a growing body of evidence supporting that, that one, you you kind of have a better understanding of how continents form, which is just fascinating in all in all sorts of ways. Because you know the idea that we're looking at these small diamond-like zircons that were formed four billion years ago, three point eight billion years ago, three point two billion years ago, and getting information on how the continents form, I think is just really cool that humans are ingenious enough to figure stuff out like this. But if this is correct, then asteroidal bombardment is going to be important for continental formation because Earth is the only continent or only planet in our solar system that has continents. It may very well be the only planet of all the ones that we've discovered that has continents if you need this bombardment activity because there was a there was this you know, probably a late heavy bombardment, whether it was really heavy or not, you know, that, that's open for discussion. But it was clear there was this period where Earth had a lot of bombardment. And not only did that seem to start the process of continent formation, but the way that happened in our solar system cleared out a lot of the debris so that this bombardment happened a lot very early. And now it's about a thousand times less than what it would have been. So we're now living in an era where the asteroids and comets that would hit the Earth are a thousand times less frequent than they otherwise would have been. And so this era where the late heavy bombardment happened, not only did it clear out and make it amenable for life much later because there's fewer bombardments, but it seems to be part of the process that started the formation of continents, which is also critical for life. And so I think this just kind of adds to an already very strong body of evidence that Earth is it's like it's got a purpose. It's it's designed, it's fine-tuned to host life, and we're just seeing more and more evidence come forth to support that idea. So I'm curious, you know, as you're listening there, Brian, what sort of, does that uh, stir any thoughts, or how's you, how do you respond to hearing scientific discoveries of, of that nature? I think you're muted. One thing that that struck me as you were saying all that was, yeah, it's it's really interesting that we have the ability to study all this. And and from what I remember, people like Hugh saying is that we're in a unique place in our galaxy and universe to be able to study the rest of the universe. And so the fact that we can even study all this to me is is really interesting. And it it just goes to show how unique Earth is. Uh, people are saying, you know, we maybe discover life on other planets and things. And as as Hugh and Fuzz like to say, we're very unique planet we're a very unique uh in a very unique kind of galaxy and, and near a, a unique star and so uh i think it, it does point out um just how special uh this this place is and, and how, how god has has put us here for a specific reason and there's a lot of stuff i don't know anything about the continental stuff you, <laughs> you're talking about uh sounds really interesting and, and cool 
Well, it, it, one of the things that I found fascinating in this is that, you know, I've talked a lot about the late heavy bombardment. And then, you know, the, again, that's this era where when you look at how the solar system formed, there's this uh, graphic that I used to illustrate this is that it's got a picture of, you know, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune and Uranus in that in that order. Uh, you know, you notice that Neptune and Uranus are are backwards there and you've got the sun and they're all in these kind of compact orbits. And there's this this dense cloud of asteroid comet type debris out there that's left over from the process of planet formation. Well, as Jupiter and Saturn migrate, they move in and out and they get into resonances. And there's this kind of rapid change where the things get kind of chaotic or you know, look a little chaotic for a while. And then you end up on the far right panel where now you've got Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune in the right order. Their orbits are much larger. And that debris cloud that's around there, it's just, it's where it's just this dense ring in the, in the early image, it's this, it's just kind of scattered debris, little bits and pieces here and there. And I always thought, you know, that's interesting that that happened very early in Earth's history, because if it happened now, well, that would just be catastrophic to life. I mean, having, you know, mile wide, 10 mile wide things hit the Earth, those, those are extinction level events, you know, so just you're going to wipe life out. And so I thought, you know, that had to happen early in Earth's history so that it couldn't happen later. This discovery, if if it if this is ultimately the explanation, and I'm I don't I'm not gonna not going so far as to say, oh, we figured out how continents form. This is the explanation, but this seems to provide a fair bit of evidence in support of this being the, the proper explanation. If that's correct, now not only do we have to clear that stuff out, we need to have enough of those asteroid collisions to start continent formation, but not so much that later on in Earth's history, you're going to have these catastrophic collisions that wipe out life. And so rather than it being it just needed to happen early, it needs to happen late enough that the continents can form. It needs to happen sufficiently large enough that continents can form and sufficiently early that it doesn't wipe out subsequent life. And so rather than just be, oh, it's got to happen early enough. No, it needs to happen kind of in this range with this level of magnitude in order to get Earth to be as habitable as it is. And so, uh, you know, there, there was just more design in that than I was even aware of. And this seems to illuminate it even more. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting that things that you don't even think about like that, the people like me who don't know anything about this kind of aspect of, of, of asteroids or continent formation is just things that we don't even consider have to be so precise for our life here. It's just, I guess, one more notch on, on the, uh, on, on the design meter, I guess, if I can mix metaphors a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> on the, the stick of design level. <clears throat> well, I find it interesting because I, I tend to be a little slow to adopt new information, if you will. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, like with the late heavy bombardment, I'm like, okay, it had to happen early enough. I don't know whether it had to happen, uh, you know, whether there's other ways, but, or, you know, could have happened earlier, could have happened, you know, a billion years later, we'd have still been okay. And so it's like, okay, if it hadn't happened, it would be problems today. I know th there's, there's strong evidence for that. Whether it was any more tuned than that, I'll kind of leave open for future possibilities, but I'm only going to kind of stick with this. And I, I seem to be increasingly encountering areas where what I thought was, okay, there's this minimal level and I, I'm, I'm okay with that, but I don't know whether I want to push it harder. It turns out that I could actually push it much harder. 
and the evidence has come in later to support that, yeah, there is a lot, lot more evidence for the designer fine tuning. And so I tend to be a little bit of a minimalist in terms of adopting fine tuning. Uh, Hugh tends to be a little bit more of a maximalist in my assessment, but uh, either way, the evidence showing up for the fine tuning is pretty phenomenal. Uh, I find it very remarkable. It's mind boggling. Yeah. From everything that, 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 that Fuzz is doing on the biochemical level and he on the cosmological level and then this is just, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's so much evidence that, that there had to be such precise conditions that, that it, the chance of it being merely from, from chance is essentially zero. Well, and, and to go back to our earlier discussion, I mean, if we see this level of fine tuning and design here on earth, uh, you know, just even within our solar system, but I expect, I mean, yeah, there's a boatload of planets out there, you know, a hundred billion just in our galaxy alone that are going to be earth sized. I'm not so sure that the idea flows from that, that, oh, just because there's so many, we're going to find life out there. We seem right. to find a lot of things that need to be true of Earth in order to support life. And if it's so rare or fine-tuned here on Earth, the idea of all these unidentified aerial phenomena or any of those being related to aliens, even independent of the challenges of traveling from a distant planet here, I just... I, it seems to me that I don't think we're going to find life out there. Uh, you know, at least looking at it just from a naturalistic perspective, whether that's God right. created life out there, that's a whole different question in my book. That's right. And, and it is kind of a, for a normal, you know, a non-specialist like me in those kinds of areas, the universe is so incredibly vast. We're kind of narrow minded to think we're the only ones here. Um, but when you start looking at these, these, these data, um, about everything that you've mentioned and what what Hugh has to say, everything has to be so exactly precise that the chances are are minimal. And it's even interesting that people like Jacques Vallée say that from a naturalist point of view, you know, we have these these aliens that are, most of them look anatomically like us with the head and arms and legs. He he says that this is from a naturalist point of view, from an evolutionary point of view, the chances of of just random uh, naturalistic evolution giving rise to these other uh, beings that somewhat look like us is it's essentially zero <laughs> from a non-christian of course if you add theism it might make that different but just from a straight naturalist point of view we've got right. people who were not christians saying yeah evolution is not going to allow uh, other kind of beings that, that look anatomically like us you know that's a that's an interesting point because you know, if all the aliens look more or less like us, what that essentially says is there's not too many ways you can have advanced organisms, or you know, at least human-like organisms that can work. Yeah, and it goes beyond just the, just the look and the anatomical structure, but the, the ability to see in a certain spectrum and hear and the way the body works. It's just not going to happen on a naturalist point of view. Now there are a number of different um, species of aliens that that people look at. Some are reptilian. Some are uh, right. they're really different and weird, but a lot of the times we see this kind of similarity with, with us. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that's what I found interesting is cause there's, there's part of the idea out there. Okay. Wherever you get water, life's just going to adapt to whatever the conditions are, right. which would lead to this expectation that everything would look very, very different. But if everything looks kind of like us, that says, all right, maybe it's not true that all the conditions out there life just adapts to that you got to have these very specified conditions so even just this similarity i think that's probably a lot more 
a reflection of we're creating or, or, you know, that there's something related to our psychology that goes on right. with aliens. Mm -hmm. But if that's indeed true, that seems to lead to this counterintuitive or you know, either life doesn't just adapt to whatever the environment is or more. It's like, no, there's, there's only a few ways this works. And without those conditions, it's not going to work. And both right. of those seem to point towards a, uh, a theistic perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Well, thanks, Brian. Really enjoyed our conversation today. It's been fun talking about uh, UFOs and UAPs and uh, looking at continents and stuff. Uh, you know, I would just encourage everybody, if you've enjoyed this uh, episode of Star Cells and God, to check back each week. We release a new episode. Go to reasons.org. You can get a lot of information there. Be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe. Mm -hmm.